Welcome back to Not Too Busy to Write. I'm Penny Winter, author and book coach. Today, I'm very excited to have a return guest on the podcast. I first spoke to award-winning writer Homo Qureshi in 2021 about her short story collection, Things We Do Not Tell the People We Love. Today, we are discussing Homer's debut novel, Playing Games, a story about two sisters, the very different ways they process grief, and the question of whether it's okay to borrow from real life as a writer. Homa is also a creative writing teacher focusing on short stories and life writing, and we dive into her teaching style and her most loved stories and book recommendations for fellow writers. Playing Games is out on November 9th and is delightful. If you enjoy the episode, do sign up to Homer's literary agony art newsletter, Dear Homer, and you can also have some more of Not Too Busy to Write over on Substack. The links to both of those are in the show notes. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Homer. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Again, you're a repeat guest. Oh, thank you so much, Penny. I've been looking forward to this for so long. <laughs> um, it's so fantastic to have you back on the podcast again. Um, today, we're going to be talking about your debut novel, uh, Playing Games, which is super exciting. Last time you're on, I'm going to put a um, link in the show notes to the last time you're on. We were talking about your story collection Um the things we do not tell the people we love, which I absolutely adored. So I was so excited to read your novel um, and it did not disappoint at all. Beautiful. Thank you you so much. (laughs) There's so much I want to ask you about, but I wanted to start with um, your, the two sisters who, um, who are central to this book um, and their, the, and the different, and the differences that they experience in terms of their grief. Um, I, I wanted to start with this idea of one of them is a writer and um, and the story re- revolves around this idea of who do we have permission to write about, about things. Um, and I wanted to ask, I wanted to dive into that first. Um, is Do you think anything is fair game for a writer? I, I go between the two. Mm. Okay. There's a part of me more and more that feels after having written the novel that what Mira, the sister who the playwright is, that what she did, which was to, without, you know, spoiling the book for anyone, which was to borrow something that wasn't hers to borrow, borrowing somebody else's life to write about. I kind of think her intention really was just to use it as inspiration. Mm. Did she handle it the right way? Maybe not. There may have been a conversation she could have had around it, but I ultimately don't think that what she did was that bad. Yeah. I really I feel that more and more after I've read the story. And I kind of, um, one of the reasons that theme of borrowing from real life, like the the question that I'm asking in the novel in a way, I mean, there's lots of different questions, but one of the main questions is, can we borrow from real life to write about? And whose life can we write mm-hmm. about? How far can we take it? And when does fiction stop? being fiction is it when you just kind of accidentally on purpose change a couple of words does Mm -hmm. that okay does that put enough distance between you and reality or does it have to be much more significant than that so all of these ideas were in my head because a lot of people when they read my short story collections would message me or write to me even people that I knew to Mm -hmm. check that things were okay with me Uh in my my marriage (laughs) with my mother 
um, my mum found it really funny that there were lots of daughters trying to kill their mothers in my short stories. So she didn't <laughs> read it. But the number of people who did read it as quite personal amused me, let's say. Yeah. And it made me really interested. And I, I thought, well, I can kind of see why they might think that. Mm. Just because we do tend to think of authors' lives and the material that they write about as being entwined. And some of the settings of those stories might have been familiar to me, like a house or a school or a dinner party. But yeah. that actual storylines were completely fictionalized. Like those were things that I'd made up. So I found it really interesting that like there is a line like the world might be very believable the world might have been somewhere where I had experienced something but the actual storyline was where I had fun even though yeah. there was a dark amount of fun I suppose but that was this that was where the whole idea of what we borrow from life came from because I just found it so curious that so many people read it as being part of my life. And in fact, two reviewers in the newspapers, one was for the Sunday Times, I think, and one was for the New Statesman. Both of them were male reviewers and the only male reviews. Like the other ones were all, the other reviews that I got, and I was very lucky. I was, it was well-reviewed and it was, you know, that was really lovely for me. But the two male reviewers were the only two that in their reviews wrote that these were stories inspired by the author's lives, despite never having spoken to me or, you know, clearly done any research because I've obviously written a memoir about my life. So <laughs> I found it really curious that there was that kind of automatic assumption that a writer must write from life. On the other hand, is it disingenuous to say that we never write from life? Yeah. Yeah. You know, well, this, is, this is so to explore. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is what I, this is one, this is, you've just taken it down a direction I wanted to ask you because I think this is a gendered thing. I think women writers are often accused, if that's the right word, of writing directly from life when perhaps they do no more or less than a male writer does. But perhaps it's just a kind of preoccupation we think that women are writing directly from their own lives more. But perhaps what it is is that they're just like men using the settings that we are that we live within to write our stories, but the stories themselves are not necessarily based on fact. Yeah. And I wonder sometimes about what does it add to a story to know if some of it was true? Does that change yeah. the way that you feel about it as a reader? Does it heighten the intensity of emotion? I think maybe sometimes it would heighten the intensity of emotions if it suddenly becomes more real. But then that's why I guess we have a place for creative nonfiction because mm. those are stories that will resonate with you differently than if they were fiction. I think you'd still care about them in fiction. Mm. But obviously something is different if you know that it was real. But does it matter in fiction to know what was real or what wasn't? Yeah. These oh, are really think, interesting questions. Yeah, and I think these are questions that there aren't necessarily answers for, which is why I go between them. You know, like I sometimes I feel like, mm, Mira, did she do the right thing? Because she really did take something that was quite identifiable to the person whose life she borrowed, like the words, the saying of it, the context in which something happened. She could have fictionalized that more, but she chose not to because it felt real and raw mm. and the emotional truth it of it. felt true, yeah. So I think, and I think that's the other thing. I think like 
at some level, the emotional place that my characters are in, I think at some level that must come from within me because I want them to feel real and I want it to be honest. And I think all the themes that I'm interested in writing about from love and longing and loneliness and and a kind of searching for an answer, like I think I think we all experienced that that. And I think I know I, I know I experienced that. And I know that the truth of that feeling comes from within me. And I I hope that that is what makes my stories right or and my novel indeed like resonate with people is that it feels real because at some level there is a little kernel of of truth in that emotion that we that we can feel. So I just find it really, really interesting. And then I get to a point where I feel like I don't know that it matters. I don't know yeah. that it was real or wasn't real. Is isn't it enough that a story moved us? Yeah. Most of the time that's where I kind of align myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's Take- interesting because I think maybe I feel like you and that I predominantly fall on the side in the novel on I fall on mirror side predominantly. I waver at times. <laughs> but in some ways I'm not sure if I would have always across my whole life felt that way, which is really interesting. I completely agree as well. I think rewind several years pre-publication, I think I would have felt possibly differently. Mm. Add more about other people's perception of a story and where it came from, whereas now... And yes, Mira in the novel, she still could have handled it better. And she had ample opportunity. Yeah, she really did. (laughs) Just a very, very, not asking for permission, which is something I also feel really strongly about. Like, I don't think you need to ask for permission to write the story that is yours to be written. Um, And then that, again, is like a play on words, right? Because who's a story that is yours? Who's that it belongs to you? Um, But I feel... um, more and more that you definitely don't need to like asking for permission to write a novels or or a memoir is like just a no for me because you cannot write from a place of honesty if if you have to do that yeah it's it's really interesting and I think I think really great to talk to you about this as someone who has written both memoir and fiction because um, this is something I do have to talk with about writers that I'm working with who are writing quite personal nonfiction or memoir. Um, this idea of of giving yourself permission um, to tell the story from your own very particular perspective, which might actually be different from someone else's perspective of what of something that happened, which is a really scary thing to do as a writer. But um, but ultimately, I think be a truthful storyteller I guess you have to kind of um acknowledge your own perspective on things absolutely absolutely and I remember when I wrote my memoir I think at the very beginning I wrote like an author's note and I wrote it it's both in the book but it was also on my draft which was along the lines of the past is always remembered differently but this is the way that I remember it and that Mm. gave me permission every time I felt like oh have I done the right thing is that what happened did I is it really though or was I just being really sensitive like that kind of way of thinking that ends you that gets you out of writing because you talk yourself out of it yeah that was really helped me to refocus and it's not to say that I'm not at all I'm a very peaceful person I get you know my family relations matter to me having you know a good 
family life and a calm kind of life is is something that's really important to me but so I'm not saying you burn your bridges I just think that you there are ways that you can have very careful conversations when you need to have them and I don't think them at the start of the writing process yeah I think it comes later when you are stronger in yourself and you are clearer on what your story is and you can say all these things with tenderness which is Mm -hmm. I'm writing this story about how it felt for me when I was growing up or when I was in my 20s or when I lost my father which was all of which was the setting for my memoir Mm. and that was okay you know that was all very much received with love as well so I think if you approach it with love or have those careful conversations obviously it wouldn't be possible all the time depending on what you're writing about and of course that is very specific to non-fiction isn't it yeah and I think with fiction I guess like you were saying, you know, you've come to a point where you care less now about how other people perceive your fiction. If they, I guess, if they're projecting onto it and assuming it's your, for instance, let's talk the your short story collection, which has um, numerous. It's all about relationships and about about communication with relationships. And if people want to project on that, that that's something that you have directly, literally experienced. I guess that's something you can't control, is it? Yeah. And also it's interesting as well um, with playing games that it's coming out next week at the time that we're talking. And I've had a couple of these interviews now, and it's just been really interesting to me to hear what other people have read into the story that wasn't necessarily my intention, but it doesn't mean that I don't value their interpretation of it. It's just very interesting to me. like, oh, I didn't realize. And often it's it's the case of I didn't realize that you'd think I'd be being that profound. Really, I wasn't. <laughs> but like, um, it's, it's interesting to see, I think, as a reader, we often also read what we need to read, right? Yes. So we take the story that we need to read, which is why I love rereading so much. Yes. Because it's one of the things that always astonishes me is how I can read I could have read a book at 20 and then read it again at 40 and there will have been so much that I just didn't see yeah and it's not because I was immature or whatever it was just because at the time I read what I needed to read and now I read what I need to read and likely if I read it in 20 years time to come I'll get something different from it again and I think that's yeah so I think we come at it both as readers and as writers that we both take what we need. Mm. Let's talk a little bit more about Mira for a second, who's the playwright. Um, In the beginning of the novel, she's very stuck, I think in a way that lots of writers will recognise in themselves. (laughs) Um, She's quite stuck where she is. Um, And and she's literally writing a play about a woman who lies down in the middle of the stage and can't get up and she doesn't know how to move it forward. and I just, I wanted to ask you about this I, this feeling of stuckness. Did you want, have you been in that place as a writer where you felt a bit pinned down, literally pinned down on the stage and you feel like you need to go in a certain direction and you don't know how to move forward? Have you ever, have you been through that experience? Yes. <laughs> uh, yes. Um, so <clears throat> at times in the writing of playing games, it felt a little bit like, writing in real time, like these moments that Mira was experiencing, because I wrote this book in very different circumstances to any of my other books, which is to say that I had a very tight deadline. So I mm. did feel like, um, similar to Mira, who has a deadline, um, 
to write to. I also had a deadline to write to. And there were times when I was very just stuck. And I felt as if I too had just laid down on a stage and was unable to move in front of this audience watching me. Um, Before this version of playing games existed in its very kind of early first draft manuscript, there were at least three abandoned half novels of about 45,000 words each, none of which had the same theme of the play or borrowing from reality. So they weren't about writing, uh, but they were about sisters. Mm. Um, And I stopped and started and they were all very different. Um, But I think the heart of the sisters probably the same even though they didn't exist in that form the relationship developed over those drafts like the 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 two yeah and I think I think really I I call them half abandoned novels like the storyline was completely different the plot line was completely different Mm. the characters were different but I think in their very core Mm. they had the the dynamic that is now Hannah and Mira the sisters in playing games so I don't know that it was, I think looking back, it's easy for me to say that it wasn't wasted work. It was all a process of getting to the story that I I really wanted to write. And also a real lesson in not um, fighting the recurring theme that comes to you because the whole image of, the whole idea about borrowing from life and people misinterpreting fiction for reality and vice versa and all of that, that had been something that had, been swimming in my head since the stories had come out mm. but I didn't ever really think that that was something that I could work into a novel mm. when really I think it was just waiting for me to be like oh it is because you keep thinking about it and you keep wasting time reading articles about it and you're procrastinating and there was that New York Times article called the bad art friend I don't know if you remember yes. that yes that- roughly the same time yeah Um, it could have been just slightly before but that had also planted a seed in my head and so the seeds had been laid but they weren't nothing was happening with them but that was constantly at the back of my mind without me realizing but I didn't order and I was trying very hard to create these other kind of stories that felt more like novels and um, for some reason I didn't think I could write a novel about writing as well like that felt a bit too meta and a little bit too complicated and I didn't know so I just very quickly wrote that idea off but now I can see that all that despair that I went through in those kind of three sets of approximately 45,000 to 50,000 words each at at a time which is months and months of work yeah that's a huge amount of work the first at least the first nine months of intense work on this novel was kind of shelved uh, but now I can see that that was all part of the process and me understanding who Hannah and Mira would become and who they were and even just little things like what their names would be and where they would live. Like all of these little tiny seeds were being planted and I just had to see which way they would go. And um, the first time around it didn't work and I couldn't get them to where they needed to be. And second time around it was just like mm, the story wasn't really I didn't feel it emotionally so you know like each of those things I took from them what I needed in order to then realize who Hannah and Mira really would be yeah. and the story felt very much like it was theirs yeah um, 
And and that was, I think, that kind of instinct that you get. I think that that knowingness that this is their story and this is a good story, like that, yeah. that stayed with me. And then that just propelled me into the second year of writing. Yeah. Well, that's, I think it's going to be so reassuring for lots of people to hear this because, um, I mean, it's reassuring for me to hear this. I'm just mm, put a whole novel aside <laughs> and I'm starting again and something completely different. And I, I think it's, it's so important that writers talk about this, about the fact that, um, you know, it's really easy for us as readers to pick up finished books and to imagine that they somehow always existed in this one form. Even <laughs> though, you know, technically there were drafts, but but we forget just how, um, I guess, circuitous sometimes the route to, to creating a novel can be. Um, and I think it's, yeah, it's good to hear these. It's good to hear these things out loud. I'm, I just happened to be reading um, French Braid by Anne Tyler. Um, I I kind of love her novels for just being completely cleansing for me in the sense that they just take me away completely into these very intricate and slightly messy family lives, which I love reading about. And the title of that novel and the way I'm still reading it, I haven't finished it. And this is completely my... Um, perception of it but it feels very much like a French braid like writing is that process of it takes French braids are hard to do right they're messy and they're complicated but when they're done well they're so intricate and so perfect and the novel itself is all these different threads of family life and kind of different timelines but it's much more subtle than that like it's not spelt out but it's Mm. different timelines it's just time is moving in a in a, the way that life does in a very effortless way but you know there's a big cast of characters and it is messy and it's complicated and it's very easy to read it and think oh gosh but she always writes perfection but actually you know doing a French braid takes a lot of practice to get yeah. it and get it neat and tidy and even and not like pieces hanging out and that that just has really stayed with me that, that yeah. that's how you write a novel it is, is all these different strands and you have to get started and eventually they'll start to cross over and, and become something beautiful, yeah. which is what we all hope for. So um, I wanted to ask you about um, the two sisters. They, What struck me is that in some ways um, they're both, and I think possibly Hannah particularly, is someone who's quite self-aware. Um, she's aware of, and in fact, both of them behave you know, a bit badly sometimes, especially towards each other. But they're also quite aware of how they behave and they almost can't stop themselves. I think probably particularly Hannah. And I wanted to ask you about the idea of like how much um you as the author had to decide how aware Hannah particularly was going to be about her own um her own challenges. Was it quite was that a process that just sort of came out over those those drafts or were you quite sure that she wanted to be aware of of how she challenged her sister um and not be able to stop herself i i think the latter to what you just said mm. like i wanted her to have that self-awareness but still be blocked by yeah that kind of inability to say what she really feels so for context uh for readers who are listening so Mira and Hannah are two sisters Hannah is the slightly older sister um and she is 
uptight and she's very professional, very driven, very motivated. And Mira is the creative playwright. And so I started off with these two sisters who seem like opposites, but and I'm very aware as I describe them to you now that it sounds like a little bit of a trope, right? And we see that we have the two sisters who are very different. It's sense and sensibility. It's it's every book about sisters in a way that they're different. But what I wanted was to try and show that it was much more complicated than mm. that. We're not just simplified opposites of each other. They have experienced an awful lot in their life together. They grew up together, but then they go through a kind of life-changing moment, losing their mother, which actually brings them so much closer, but they fail to realize that. Mm. And they sadness is something that I'm also really interested in, like how you don't realize how important someone can be to you. And we do take family for granted. And that was something that I really wanted to explore with Hannah as well, because she does take Mira for granted. Yeah. Um, as the oldest, but also just in in life, I think she expects a certain she expects life to repay her in a way mm-hmm. for what she has been through, and is very very angry when it doesn't work out that way. And I think my hope was that in giving all these angles to Hannah was that she would become more than simply. Um, a vehicle for the story and more than simply this trope of the older sister that she she is vulnerable and it really that was very important to me from the outset was that in the beginning you kind of think you know who Hannah is and you kind of see how like oh yeah I know what kind of character she is but then she reveals or, or I reveal rather as the writer her vulnerability and her desires and I think the sadness is that Hannah can't say how she really feels because she's convinced herself that to do that means that you know that life stops that that she can't move forward and all her life she's had to be the one who moves forward and continually just keeps going mm-hmm. um and that I think was Hannah's tragedy in a way yeah uh, and yeah it deeply mattered to me to show her as much more than just this one-dimensional older yeah. sister who and I think showing her in vulnerable moments I hope gave her the depth that made her more than just that in the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, because to me, Hannah and Mira are quite equal protagonists. And that- yes, I was oh, going to yeah. ask you about that because I think when I first was picking up the book, I was like, "Oh, Mira's our protagonist." In the back of my mind, and then I realized actually, this this actually might be one of the novels that there are two equal protagonists. And I know it's it's um it's not which is not that common in a way. Like often we are essentially kind of attaching ourselves to one protagonist but I I it was interesting after reading it I really did feel like um that as a reader uh, how we feel about the sisters almost flips you know I think Mira comes off in the beginning as the kind of sort of a kind of slightly typical unsuccessful one but actually it's Hannah's tragedy as you as you put it is is actually kind of more heartbreaking in a way. Yeah. Um, it's kind of you know, um, her, you know, compared to Mira's stuckness, yeah. you know, that what's um, what's keeping Hannah the way she is is really tragic. Yeah, I think it hits in a way that's more profound when you connect the dots mm-hmm. of. And I'm talking really carefully here, so as to not give I know, away. not to spoil anything here. <laughs> 
when you connect the dots of how we become the people we are um how this kind of predates uh the loss of a parent for them it's the way that Hannah has always had to be it's almost like she's had no choice yeah um and I felt for her a lot and and I really wanted to give Hannah um I wanted to give both of them a really happy ending and yeah yeah I, I at times didn't know how I would but that was there was always this picture in my head from the very beginning that this is who they are at the beginning and this is who they're going to be at the end and that scene to me um just talking about kind of the writing and the process, that scene to me was very clear. Yeah. But I had no idea what was going to happen in the middle. Yeah. But I just knew if I could just get them to that living room on that sofa, mm-hmm. that's that's where it goes. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I just had to get them there. <laughs> well, um, let's talk a little bit more about the process as well, because this is your first full-length fiction, work of fiction. You've spent You've obviously written memoir, um, you've written nonfiction, and you've written short stories. Um, well, you've already talked about that uh, doing a number of drafts and, and letting them go and starting again. But in terms of what it was like for you to switch from short stories where your head was at for quite a while before this to full-length fiction, what was that like for you as a writer? Um, it was very unsettling. It was really unsettling because I had to unlearn a lot of what I had learned in writing. So my background from many years ago was as a journalist, a newspaper journalist. And I suppose I took that approach of writing with me to short fiction because it is quite similar. So let's say I was writing a 1,500 word feature article I would not have the time to spend on doing draft and draft and draft. And it kind of bemuses me that people think that's what we would do in a newsroom. You literally don't, you would write your first line, or at least I would write my first line and I would know, okay, that's my intro. I didn't have time to overthink. And I would leave gaps for quote from so-and-so and research from X, Y, Z. So I would see the structure taking place as I was writing it. And then I could go back and fill in the gaps. I could make the phone call to get the quote, put it in. I could, you know, writing a short story was not dissimilar to that because I would know that I would know what I was wanting to kind of explore, what the I kind of think in a very visual way. So I would often have quite an opening scene in my head. So I would know that scene and I would write it down. And then I would kind of stop and think about where is it going? Who do I need to be in this story? And it would piece together like a jigsaw. And mm-hmm. maybe I'm not saying that that's easy work to do. There'll often be times, I mean, just this summer alone, I gave up on three short stories that I was trying to write because they just weren't coming together. But I think that process of fundamentally writing without thinking too much about going back to change it, like capturing that first intensity of feeling, I think that short stories lend themselves to that because they are these little vehicles that can be quite intense and quite highly charged. So I would just come at it with with everything first time around. Um, and, you know, I could finish like a story and no easily in a week which I know sounds a bit I I remember reading somewhere that I think Lucy Caldwell who is one of my favorite short story writers I think she'd spend like a month on a story and I'd be like oh god I should probably be spending more time on my stories but you kind of would get or 
by you, I mean, I would get <laughs> caught up in this tempo and my short stories are quite intense in nature and they are this quite overwhelming rush of something that happens and then someone is changed by it. And I would use that very simple framework of something happens and someone is changed by it as my structure for the story. Um, and so I wouldn't spend hours and hours and days and days and months and months and weeks and weeks on just structural edits and character edits. You just, I just wouldn't do that. I would finish a story. I would know in myself that it was finished. I would read it back. I would feel the kind of, I would look for the emotional high points in the story. I would feel myself get taken along with it. Then I'd say, yeah, that's great. I'd cut the whole text, paste it into a separate document that would be the collection, and I'd move on to the next one. I could just switch it off and move on to the next one. Novel writing was nothing like that. And I had so much to unlearn because I wanted my page one to be perfect from the get-go. Like, and mm. it didn't matter. Didn't matter that I had heard all these wonderful authors on your podcast, on other people's podcasts, you know, like, and everyone talks about their process. The the common theme is that you just kind of have to put it down, right? I really struggled with that. I really struggled with the concept of a messy first draft. I don't like mess. That was really hard for me to see. On it's hard because the the size is it like the scale in a novel is so large, isn't it? Yeah, it's it's um it's easy to then be very overwhelmed with the amount of words that then need fixing, isn't it? Absolutely. And there was a part of me that very much was like, well, I don't want to write a crappy first draft that I then have to come back to and fix everything that's wrong with. I want to fix it as I go along. And Yes, that worked to a certain extent, but on the other hand, it would just tie me up in more knots because I think what it was doing was, it was, uh, if we go back to that analogy of a French braid, it was tightening it so much that there Mm. wasn't any room to discover what else was going to come. And I didn't have much of a plan. I had a very visual idea of these sisters at the beginning, and I had a very clear scene like almost like a film scene of what would happen at the mm. end. But I didn't really know what was going to happen in the middle. I knew what themes I was interested in. But there were some things that just happened on the page that kind of surprised me. And I was like, okay, I'm just going to go with this. So it was a very unsettling experience to feel. Yeah. I had always been someone who knew very clearly what my story, like if I was taking a short story, even if it was say 7,000 word, I knew what it was going to be about. Yeah, I knew that this would be a story about, um, I don't know, overwhelming sadness between a mother and a daughter or the inexplic- the inability to express love. Um, I'm thinking especially of, of one of the stories at the heart of my collection, which I think was the longest I'd ever written before, which was about maybe 8,000 words. It's at the center of my collection. Um, but I, I had such a strong feeling about it. And of course, it's not that's not to say that I didn't have strong feelings about playing games. It's just that it's so much more vast. Yeah. yeah. And there's so much more that you can't plan for. So what I did was after these kind of three various attempts in which I think I was getting to know the kind of sisters that I might like to write, um, I just took it very simply, like scene. Mm scene and that opening scene and I think again that is like learning to trust your instinct which I I feel is not something that we're necessarily told we can actually do like we can 
you're told all the ways that you can map out a full act story and have an arc and all these things. But really, I think you have to learn to listen to your instinct and just trust yourself at a certain point. And I could see Mira in that first scene, she's sitting on top of her bed with her legs crossed. And it's like, I just need to, I need to take it scene by scene. I need to allow myself to feel what is going to come because it is such an, we talk so much about processes if we can rationalize it. Yeah. Yeah. We aren't. And that there's this whole uh talking about Hannah, for instance, and her vulnerability. There is a history in Hannah's life about um an early pregnancy, for instance. And that's another theme of the story uh of the novel, which is is motherhood and also daughterhood and, and the kind of longing for both, for both of them. They both long to be daughters and they both long to, well, Hannah at least longs to be a mother. And um that whole I knew I needed Hannah and I wanted Hannah to show that vulnerable side. But that whole storyline just kind of was like, just tumbled onto the page. And it sounds like one of those things that writers say, but it is true. And I remember then returning a draft to my editor and she was like, that storyline is amazing. Where did that come from? And it's like, I don't, I don't know because she'd never seen that before in any of the previous versions. And um, I, it's things like that, that you just, the more you spend on your story, the more kind of you're constantly thinking about it, even when you're not writing. And especially in a way when you're not writing and feeling terrible about not writing, something just comes. And even if it's totally subconscious and you don't realize it, it comes the next time you sit down and that's the one thing that I am holding on to for the next thing that I write, which is I've, I've learned so much about myself in this process, which is that I can't micromanage yeah. a novel and um, I can't know everything before I start writing. Um, you know, I, and- you might be interested to know, because I know that obviously loads of writers have lots of different processes. I found one really interesting conversation. It was Leanne Moriarty, the Australian writer who writes um, quite quite complex sort of thriller type yeah. stories. I don't know exactly how you describe them, with a lot of characters. And she, and it might've been on In Writing. I'm going to look it up and I'll put it in the show notes if it is. Um, and she was explaining that actually she gets to the end of the draft. She first of all, doesn't plot the whole thing out at all. Um, she does it as she goes, but also she fixes as she goes against what everybody else tells you to do. Yeah. She does the opposite. She said, I get, I get to the end of that draft and it's, you know, it's pretty good. She's like, I don't do, I don't do a shitty first draft. I just don't do it. It's just not like, I just don't like doing that. And, yeah. but also she doesn't plot it all out either. So it's not perfectly planned because she likes to discover. Yeah. Um, and I know there are quite a lot of writers who like to discover as they go. Um, but it's just so interesting to hear writers dip- talk about those differences. Cause it's almost like we have to, like you were saying, we have to remind ourselves that it's okay to do it the way it works for you. It's okay yeah. to follow your instinct and do it how you want to do it. If that's what works for you. I think there is definitely value in what people do say about writing that first draft so quickly, but I don't feel like I can say, I I don't feel like I can identify when I wrote a first draft because it was such an ongoing process and there was so much, for me, it was a layering process. Mm. So I think I wrote essentially a collection of scenes that were very unthread together and um, I had a really interesting kind of publishing process as well, because 
my editor was seeing all of this in a way that if I was um, submitting in the normal way, she wouldn't have seen. Yes. Um, yeah. She would know when I would. And it was very hard for me to show her like, okay, I've written like 45,000 words, but none of it is threaded together because it really wasn't. It was just these individual scenes. Mira sitting on her bed, Hannah going to work. Like there were just individual scenes. And it was from there that I then did a backwards mm. Um, so I had written maybe again fifty thousand odd words of of just scenes. I'd say less than half of them actually made it into the final version of the book. But the threat, the kind of the what I was really interested in was all in there, and I just had to find a way to thread it together and braid it together again. Um, and yeah, so that that is that's why like I can't say that I just sat down and in three months I I wrote my first draft and then I went back and I polished it it really didn't work like that yeah and I don't know at which point I did really finish a draft because I was constantly going back to something and and I I think you know I would go back I I could have been at page 120 or something and realized that a tiny, tiny thing, a tiny description doesn't fit with mirror on page five. And then, you know, so I'd be working backwards and I would fix it there and then. Yeah. Um, and uh, those little things, because everything, I think one thing that will always stay with me from short stories is the sense that the tiniest detail has an impact mm. on something else. So I, I, and I don't like being frivolous with backstory and like, I, I'd like things to be quite tight and controlled. Um, uh, and at the same time, you can't control it too much because you need it to flow and you need it to be just be effortless on the page. And like, there's so much work that goes into all yeah. of that. Um, so, yeah, I think it is. It's freeing when you realize that you don't have to write the way that everyone else yeah. writes and that everyone else probably isn't writing in the same way either. Um, so yeah it's it's um yeah messy first drafts even just the words would just be like I can't I just yeah (laughs) no not for me um yeah it's interesting I'm I'm still experimenting and what I think what I'm trying to do in a way is is take what I know works is working well for me in nonfiction and seeing how I can in some ways not impose it on fiction but take the essence of what works for me in nonfiction and kind of um, go with that a little bit in fiction. So we'll we'll see how that develops over over time. But um, but so that was interesting what you're saying about the fact you already had an editor for this one because this is this was part of a two book deal, wasn't it? And so um, so I guess slightly unusually, although not unusual for lots of writers um, who are well established, well established, established. Um, you had an editor looking at like looking at it right from the beginning rather than looking at at a completed manuscript that perhaps an agent had already kind of you know edited as well so that must have been a very interesting experience very and there were times when I oscillated again between feeling like I would never do a two-bit deal again to I'm so glad <laughs> <laughs> in a way it was almost invaluable to firstly have that pressure taken off so you know you know that you're going to be published you just have to write the book um but it took a lot of my agent, my wonderful agent, Laurie, took a lot of her convincing me that it really was okay to show my editor mm. the scrappy bits. And she was like, absolutely, that is what 
they're there for and they are so ready to see it. It doesn't matter. Like it doesn't have to be, but in my mind, it had to be polished completely perfect, just like my story collection was, which mm. was like done. Um, but once I got over that initial fear of showing someone work like that, which I'd never done before because I'd never really, I'd never I'd done some creative writing classes like 20 odd years ago, but I was the absolute shyest person there. I would not, I must have missed the time when you read your work. I don't think I would have gone. <laughs> um, I certainly had never done that before. And the only person that had read any of these scraps was my agent, Laurie. And before I had her, it was no one. Like I mm. literally had no one that I would show work to. Um, um, so once I got over that fear of showing something undone mm. and in my mind, quite messy, um, then I, it was an incredibly, just such a valuable way of writing a book. And it made me feel a lot less alone. Yeah. Um, yes, there was a lot of pressure because there was a deadline. And after a certain point, that deadline is fixed. Like you are in the publishing schedule. Yeah. You have to deliver. Yeah. Um, and there were times when that would frighten me and I would feel quite paralyzed by it. And mm. I would panic because I would literally sit down at my computer and be like, I have no idea what's going to happen next. I just don't know. What am I going to do? <laughs> like, But you, once you get over the panic, once you kind of calm yourself down and you realize that you're just there to tell the story and you get back inside the story, yeah. that really helped me. So rather than being panicked by publishing deadlines, just living in the story, being with Hannah and Mira, just spending all that time with them like looking back now I mean gosh it was that was so lucky to just yeah. live inside my characters it was a crazy time a really intense time but it was such a fortunate thing to be able to do and it brings me so much joy like just talking about it now yeah. I have a smile on my face because they were they were the best company for two years they kept me company and they lived inside my head how lucky I was to do that um and to have a pair of eyes on it whilst you're working it out was invaluable yeah. um, especially with a dead when there's a deadline involved and everyone kind of knows there's a deadline involved and there's no messing around here there's no kind of luxury of procrastinating but um it was it was an incredibly it was the first time that I really truly understood how collaborative mm. uh, writing a book can be because I didn't really, I think the first three times the books were more or less done. Yeah. You know, and they were off as complete manuscripts and there would be an editing round and then it was kind of like done, but there weren't, there weren't these like, you know, we would sit around and we would chat about Hannah and Mira like they were real people. And oh, I love that. That's that so was cool. something that, <laughs> Yeah, and that just, even if it had nothing to do with, like, it's hard to explain it because it doesn't sound like work. It didn't feel like work. But all these incidental conversations fed into the yeah. story. Kind of, they they meant something. At one point, my editor <laughs> had sent me a ridiculous YouTube link. I think she put it in my manuscript. as just like, oh, this is so funny. It reminds me of this um and it was a song from the comedy musical my crazy ex-girlfriend mm -hmm. it was a song that was um let's 
can't remember what it was now, but it's a song about men, um, about stereotyping men. And it was just a comedy moment. And bizarrely, like months later, that works its way into my story in the sense that Hannah Mira, Mira loves watching really like crappy TV and she really wanted to watch this comedy musical and you know like these things just kind of very incidental like to anyone else that might not mean anything but it was a choice that came from a world that felt right for them yeah you know because everything had been about them for so long so everything that anyone would say would in some way be like how would that happen to that would she wear that would she you know the tiniest of details so Well, let's let's talk a little bit about you. Um, you were a journalist for for a long time. Um, and now that you're a full time writer, you're also teaching creative writing as well. And I wanted to talk to you about that. Um, you're you do you teach short story writing, um, which people can do directly through you. Um, and I wanted to to hear a little bit more about about the way you teach in terms of kind of um the the shape of what those classes look like and also what it is about short stories that you love both reading writing and teaching oh lovely what a lovely question to be asked because I am such a nerd about all of this um and I teach uh life writing as well and I think my approach to both is quite similar because I went early on when I was a journalist in my 20s and I worked um at a newspaper I told myself that I was writing for a living and therefore I was doing what I really wanted to do but really I wanted to be writing stories Mm -hmm. Um, and so you know in the evening I remember going to evening creative writing classes and not telling anyone that that was what I was doing I'd just like pack up on time from the office and go um, and be very vague if anyone asked me oh have you got plans this evening or whatever like I didn't tell anyone I didn't necessarily intend to share any of it and I do remember Um, And this is nothing about the places where I took the courses. It's nothing about the people that were teaching. I think it was just my expectation was that I remember my heart sinking a little bit that we were just all sat around desks and it was very formulaic. And I remember at one point uh, there was talk of creating a character spreadsheet and knowing everything there is to know about your character from their date of birth and what they had for breakfast and what color socks they put on, even if it's not relevant to your story. And I I understand the purpose of that exercise. I do not want to sound as if I'm better than that or my teaching is better than that at all. I, I know what they mean by that because you see that kind of advice repeated everywhere um, about and they're trying to get you to think about your character as a real person. They're trying to get you to know everything there is about them so that their choices fit the character they are on the page. So what you show them on the page works and so that it makes sense and it's believable. I do understand that. However, I have this distinct memory of sitting in the horseshoe um, arrangement around uh, in a classroom and just kind of looking around the room at people filling in their spreadsheets and me thinking this doesn't feel like creative writing to me this there's nothing creative about this like I don't need to know like I I don't need to know their birthday I don't need to know what they have for breakfast I know who they are because I feel them you know like I had this very almost a very simplistic approach to writing which was that if I felt it I could write it yeah Um, and so I remember just sort of 
being a little bit disillusioned by the process. And I, you know, I spent an awful lot of money on learning to write books. In fact, I have several of them behind me still. Like I'm not going to read them out, but um, just in case. But and there is value in everything that you're trying to do. I 100% understand that. It's just a way in. But I think what I was seeing was the way in was being repeated again and again. And it just felt way too prescriptive. Like I've never heard anyone talk about following their instinct in writing or putting their emotions at the heart of the story or their character's emotions at the heart of the story. And that was everything that I was reading. I've always loved um, novels and stories about, I suppose, what we call domestic domestic lives. Um, about those tensions and relationships and messy relationships and complex relationships that all fall apart. And I always wanted to be able to pull people apart and see if I could put them back together again. I just didn't know how to start. And I just remember being a little bit flat feeling just a little like, like this is something that I, I love and I want to do and was supposed to be the treat of my week was to go to these creative writing classes, but I'm just not feeling it. I just don't feel it in that classroom with like sheets of paper to fill in and tables to map out acts and arcs. Like to this day, and I tell my students this, I can't tell you what a narrative arc is because I do not understand it. I don't think that it fits to everyone's work. Um, And so the way I taught myself to write was simply to read. I just decided one day not to go to that creative writing class. And I started unpicking the stories that I'd always, I think, you know, you know, when you read something and you're just like, how, how did they do that? Yeah. How did they make me feel those things? Yeah. And when they're not real, like, how did they do that? And I think that question has stayed with me ever since I was a teenager I remember the first story, the first book that ever made me ask that question was uh, Catcher in the Rye, because Mm. I remember feeling like I was, I was probably like 14 years old. And in my very small world that I lived in, I felt like I was falling in love for the first time with Holden Caulfield. I'd never experienced anything like that before. And I remember talking to my best friend, who was also quite a book nerd, and being like, how do they make them feel so real when they don't exist? Like, we were both kind of heartbroken that this boy wasn't real. And obviously, we read it as teenage girls. And I think there is something very attractive about Holden Caulfield when you're a teenage girl. Um, and I think that question of how do you make someone feel something about someone who's not real has always stayed with me. So that was what I was looking for. And I started reading short stories again with a much more kind of unpicky eye. So I was always someone who would underline words and sentences, but normally I would only, back then I would only do it really because it sounded nice. And I wouldn't ask myself, but why? I would just be like, oh, but that's beautiful. Um, And I started really just studying in a way. I started teaching myself what it was that was making a story work. Mm. And I began to see the, the, uh, not all the time, because every single story and every single writer is different, but I began to see what you needed to make it work. And it was often, it felt like me like a screw in the middle of the story just turned. And sometimes it didn't turn in the middle. It would be right at the end or the paragraph before, but there's something that just turned and, and then the world looks different afterwards. And I think that is what I wanted to put into my writing courses was knowing 
how much I wanted to write, but struggled to find a way to do it because nothing else seemed to fit. I wanted to teach for that person like me. If you didn't want to learn about writing in a classroom, doing the same thing as everyone else. Um, and so we look at texts, we look at stories, we unpick them, we read them. And I don't, I don't kind of dictate what stories to read either. I feel really strongly that it comes from you because mm. what you're interested in is what's going to show you. So read widely, but then choose the one that speaks to you the most, because mm. what speaks to me the most won't necessarily match with you. And, um, and then we, we, I try not, I, I really do believe that there is something magical about writing that you can't just put into words and say and then do this and then do this and that's not to say that I don't think you can teach writing I think you can but I think what we're doing is building up all this kind of inner layers of learning to observe learning to spot things learning to listen learning to watch and look out for gestures and characterization all these tiny little things that will then mean that when you come to the page it's easier to get lost in the flow Mm. where sometimes things that you might plan for would happen but other times it happens on the page and I think that's something you never get taught. You never get taught to believe that it could just happen on the page and then go back and by all means, then explore the beauty of language and how you can make your description so powerful in just like five words in a short story because you don't have space and all of that. Then you can go back and be really technical. But I think what I want to do is what... It's the hand on the, I want to be the hand on someone's shoulder that I was looking for, I think, for myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's that kind of teaching. It definitely comes from a very personal place. And a lot of it is just a case of this is one way of doing it. And it might not work for you, but it opened a door for me. And I think that's what helps you when you're stuck sometimes with writing is like when I get stuck, I love to listen to podcasts about writers because just hearing what someone does suddenly gives to you, even if it doesn't work for you, even if you only try it for a day, it's just another way in. Yeah. And, and you that way in. Similar to how those spreadsheets were a way in for some people. They just were a block for me. Yeah. So I needed another way around it. And that yeah. way was to put myself in it, really, to put yeah. myself in the heart of it. Um, so yeah. That's <laughs> um it's such a beautiful way of putting it because I think that's how I see these conversations that I have on the podcast is, is um, the more, the more I'm let into another writer's writing life, um, the more I get to understand what works for me, not because I kind of then go and do what someone else is doing, but it's almost like for every different iteration, for every different style of, of however people sit down to get the, get the story out. um, It's, it's sort of, it's almost like a permission for all the multitudes of ways that you can access that in your yourself. Yeah. Um, perspective sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I'm going to pop your courses in the show notes so people can go explore them. But can we finish on? Um, I know you don't like to dictate what people read, but I would love to hear if you have a few absolute favorite short story collections and novels that just for you have really helped unlock something for you in terms of opened your eyes and your mind to what can be achieved in a story? Absolutely. Um, I have a big pile to go through with you. 
Um, so for novels, um, I, I I feel a little bit bad for saying that I that short stories are my favorite form because actually I really do love novels as well, and I I have written one and. and- <laughs> love them as well I, I really do and one of my absolute favorite novels is American Wife by Curtis Hiddenfeld and yeah. it's one of those novels that I have reread and reread and if you like read the blurb because it's about you know being the first lady and it it's not necessarily a story that you would think you would reread again and again but it's so much more than the plot Mm. I, it's so much more than American politics. Like if you said that it's a story about being being a politician's wife, being the president's wife, like that doesn't sound that that thrilling. But it, it's like you know, you might read it once, that kind of thing. But it, it's not something that would necessarily appeal to me as someone who likes to read stories about family life. And yeah. but it is about family life. That's the thing, and it is about. A relationship at its very core. And Curtis Sittenfeld does it so beautifully because it's so precise. And that's why like, I really love her short stories as well, which are completely different. Yes. So precise. Yeah. That precision of writing stands both in a novel and in her short stories. So that is something that I'm always just fascinated by how she did it. Yeah. Like, I'm constantly fascinated by that and also again it's another example of that uh truth and fiction yes yes really fascinating which she's done a couple of times and um and yeah no I'm completely intrigued by her writing completely intrigued. I mean I, I really I really enjoy her books but I'm also intrigued on a technical level about how she achieves what she achieves yeah and I think one thing she does so well is subverting your expectation as a reader Mm. in such a clever way that you don't see it coming. And I think I've been thinking of her short stories in particular um, where she does that. And there's one in the story collection, Help Yourself. Yes, I was just thinking about that, yeah. One of her newer collections and it's got three, it's a very short collection because it's only three stories. And I think all of them have actually been published in the New Yorker, I think. So you can read them individually uh, for free online if you wanted to, but you can also buy her book. But um, there's one in particular there, which is a very contemporary story. Um, I don't want to spoil it for anyone, but it's a, it's a very clever look at society and like white privilege and mm-hmm. and how far we take things in that lens it's very funny but also blisteringly astute as an observation so yeah I love her for her precision of writing and and her flair and her wit mm. and her world building like making taking something that's real and then fictionalizing it which is something that she's done at least twice now mm. yeah but, um yeah, so that I love. I also absolutely love, and they're both quite contemporary books, I guess, that I've chosen as Writers and Lovers by Lily King. Oh, it's yeah. One of my absolute favourite books, even though it's not been out for that long. I think it's been out for maybe yeah, three, two or three years, yeah. Um, and I, it was the first Lily King that I'd read. I know she'd written before that, but, oh, I just loved it so much. It felt so tender, and it was one of the novels that actually when I was writing playing games it felt like I had permission to write about writing Mm. I talked myself out of writing about writing from the beginning and 
Rice and Lovers is just like this lovely, cool glass of water on a hot day. It's so pretty and it's so moving and it's also very simply written and I love that I love when writing isn't overwritten yeah and yeah. oh I really love that one as well and actually funnily enough I'm reading completely completely different tone but also about writers at the moment Bunny by Mona Awad and I mean it's such I mean it couldn't be more of different tone but it's really funny because I really love reading about writing. <laughs> And I think it might have been Writers and Lovers that kind of opened that up for me a bit that was like, oh, we're allowed to enjoy reading about writers. (laughs) Also reading about writers who were women and not necessarily, I think in Writers and Lovers, she's like in her 30s and I've got Mira in her 30s as well. So they're not like these young super starlets who are writing in their 20s. It's been a struggle for them. And you know, in a very kind of difficult world to be published in as well. So I think it's really nice to have that side of writing made real, like just how hard it is. But also yeah. it's not a whine about how hard it is. It's the kind of beauty of why you keep going back yeah. and why it does matter and yeah. and the joy that comes from it as well. Like they both, in Writers and Lovers and also with Mira and Playing Games, they both they both reach, they both do something they never thought they could do. And, and I think that's, that should be celebrated, I think, yeah. in that, in those scenes as well. So, yeah. um, and then very quickly for short stories. Oh my gosh, you've, you've got me on short stories. Where to begin? Uh, Alice Monroe is one of my absolute favorite short story writers. Um, she can be difficult to read. I can, and I've had a few students say that, like, just hands up, like, Homer, I, I love, everything that you're you're talking about here but I just don't understand Alice Monroe like I just can't understand it and I get that because it does feel like sometimes with a short story it is a hard read sometimes like you have to really pay attention especially with Alice Monroe because she is dropping clues left right and center and you don't know why until 25 pages further down the line and then suddenly it makes sense but she demands a certain attention from you Mm. and I respect that and I also just love the worlds that she writes about and again I think it's one of those amazing moments in literature where I have absolutely nothing in common with anyone in an Alice Monroe story on paper they're all like Canadian women living in rainy towns and miserable marriages on the most part (laughs) the feelings that they experience and their kind of emotional stories are so profound and so moving um and they just seem very true of life because a lot of them I I know a lot of sort of things that are said about Alice Monroe stories that they can sometimes feel unfinished. And I think that's the whole point because life can feel unfinished. We don't, we don't resolve every tidy ending and, and sometimes endings just hang over us and we don't really know what to do with them or make of them. And it just feels very true, very honest writing and, and just deeply profound and, so observant as well um and Jhumpa Lahiri I can't not mention Jhumpa Lahiri as being a huge influence on my writing from um when I first started taking those secret lessons um because she's got a new story collection out which I haven't read yet uh but her second collection I think is called Unaccustomed Earth um and it's simply beautiful I don't know how to explain it any more than that, other than it's just simply beautiful. It's deeply moving. And it is, I don't know, it feels like it said something about life and you finish a story and you feel undone by it somehow. And you feel 
both uplifted but also sad at the same time and I think it's amazing that you can hold both of those emotions in your heart and she really showed me something about what it was to write as a writer with heritage as well so I really valued that um and I love everything she writes I also really admire how you know like how she was one of those writers who showed me what it was to go from short stories to a novel yes writing more literary in a way that didn't require explanation like I really admire how she has done that I think she's incredible as a writer mm-hmm. yeah yeah I, yeah, very I, much. I really like Jhumpa Lahiri in fact actually Jhumpa Lahiri was the writer that post-university in my kind of I guess early to mid-20s that I picked up that got me properly reading again after needing a bit of a break after uni from um you know from having that intense reading time and just going into the world of work and kind of forgetting about reading for a little while she was definitely that short story that um interpreter of maladies I picked up um I remember just being like oh yes this whole world again <laughs> you know Absolutely. when a writer gets you to fall in love with reading again and yeah she was definitely a part of that for me about very much the same. I remembered picking up Unaccustomed Earth, which I think is her second collection after Interpreter of Maladies. And then I went back to Interpreter of Maladies. And the very first story in that collection, I remember it so profoundly that the daughter has just lost her mother and she invites her father to come and stay. And it's such a beautiful exploration of grief, but also life moving on after loss. And I had not long before lost my father and I remember reading that story and um, I'd been in that state of mind, similar to what you've said, like, you, you know, you just finished university. I was quite young when he passed away, just finished university, done all that reading for your English literature degree. Um, and I remember feeling very cross with books at that time because books mm. had always given me answers. And there I was in my early 20s in London on my own, grieving my father, starting a new job at a newspaper. And these books just weren't, nothing was speaking to me and I couldn't concentrate on them. And I remember picking this up in in King's Cross on the way home before I got on a tube. And that first short story somehow managed to offer me like a consolation or something. Mm. Like it reached out to me in maybe what, 10 or 11 pages more than any other book had or could do for me at the time. And I think, again, I was reading into it what I needed to read there for me. And I really, yeah, that was very similar to me. Like it suddenly reminded me of what words could do. Yeah. Um, That's so interesting because like you, I also lost my mum around that same time when I finished university and was starting work. And I felt exactly the same. I felt books had like not prepared like I didn't feel connected to to books in the same way after experiencing a massive grief and it was when I was living in New York post just after 9-11 which was also another experience of grief that I felt like words on the page were not connecting with that I picked up Jumble Harry it was exactly at that time isn't that magical yeah it's really funny yeah and there's a couple and it's funny I don't know if you feel about this but I feel very connected to a certain books that I read at certain points in my life when I needed them and that is one of those books hundred percent is same and that's why I think rereading is such a I don't yeah. know if an element of um nostalgia is a wrong word because these are not times that were necessarily happy times but there's yeah it's, it's what they gave to me that kind of comfort or just yeah. a way into and comfort is almost too much of a 
but consolation, it, I think, is probably the word you used before that works that yeah, feels heavy. Yeah. Yeah. And it's more meaningful than just, mm. oh, that was a nice read. It it was deeply profound. Like I remember being mm. so affected by finding something that felt like it gave me the answers when no one else could and no one knew what to say and being alone in a city and just yeah it was it was it's incredible really how you can remember that that is what a book can do for someone so like my books could do that for someone and just one person who's feeling alone that would be everything wouldn't it to know that you could give them that yeah absolutely well thank you so much I'm going to put all of those in the show notes that people can go find them um everyone definitely needs to go read Jumper the Hero if they haven't read it now (laughs) after that chat um thank you so much playing games is such a delight it was so beautiful to read it and I'm so glad you're able to come back on the podcast again oh thank you Penny I'm super excited to talk to you today so thank you for giving me all your time and all your support thank you (laughs) 